There's Bible verse I think about sometimes. Many times. It goes. And I heard the voice of the Lord. Saying, who shall I send? Who shall I send? Go for us. Go for us. Thank you. It's like a virus. I'm going to tell you the story of a judge, a terrible judge, probably the worst. He hates his God-given talent. He wastes it. He might be a sociopath or just a narcissist posing as a sociopath. His prayers are trash. He disrespects his parents, his friends, his spouse. And frankly, I'm trying to bring this word back, but this character is basically a brat, a spoiled brat. I am, of course, speaking of Samson or Shimshon in Hebrew, which means little son. We'll get to that in a little bit. Buddy, let me tell you, if you heard the story of Samson in Sunday school, it is way more off than the Jonah and the whale story in our previous series. It's not even close. I truly have no clue how this guy became a biblical hero. He is a straight up nightmare from start to finish, or maybe it is simply what Lord Acton once said. Almost all great men are bad men. And ain't that the sad truth? I guess if you know anything about Samson, it's his what? His superhuman strength or Delilah or the hair? All three, maybe. Maybe that's it. It could be just the superhero worship of our culture, the Greek and Roman gods that have become comic book obsession turned into a billion-dollar movie obsession through the lens of what we call superpowers, but that's a whole other podcast. Did you guys ever see that t-shirt that says Lord's Gym on it? Jacked out of his mind, Jesus. Or maybe it was Samson on the front. I, I really can't remember. Or do you have the picture in your mind right now of Samson pushing against the pillars? That's the image most have of this character. And I think that is because if you dug any deeper on this story, you'd be pretty disgusted with this guy. And so on that note, let's get into it. Samson was a judge and a Nazarite at birth. He was the 12th judge in Israel's history, and by far the most time is spent on him in the book of Judges. And I will say, if you want to get to the weird parts of Scripture, dust off your Bible and crack open the book of Judges, because Moses, smell the roses, that book is bonkos. This might help with the discussion, so let's rewind. Tyler, what's a judge? I know what a prophet is, I know what a disciple is, a king, an apostle, a patriarch maybe, sort of. So if you remember, Joshua leads the tribes out of Israel into the promised land. This is the end of Deuteronomy and the whole book of Joshua. They went on a Yahweh-instructed giant hunt, which FYI is my favorite subject, but I don't think everyone's ready for that quite yet. He commanded them as God instructed to obey the laws of the covenant that Moses had laid out before them before they headed in. Sidebar, Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land for striking the rock and taking credit for it. Really tough punishment. 
the point was to show the other nations what God was like, what makes this people group different, because especially in the ancient world, they were doing things so differently than the other people groups around them. Women had rights, children mattered, respecting your elders, dietary restrictions. This was a tough look for the Canaanites, Amorites, Midianites, and Jebusites. All right, so the great leader Joshua dies, and the book of Judges is right after that, and it tells the story of Israel's complete and utter embarrassing failure on these commands. It's really bad. So this is before there were any kings in the promised land, and we have judges that will spring up and try to help the people. That's what the judges do. And Samson was the last of the 12. But don't think like a a courtroom setting. I doubt that you are, but I just have to say that. Think more of a a military leader of a small geographic spot, like a mayor that has an army and hands out street justice, a mob boss, incredibly violent ways of solving problems. And there are two main sentences to harp on in the book of Judges, and they are, quote, people did evil in the sight of the Lord, end quote. And the other one is, in those days, there was no king, and every man did what was right in his own eyes, end quote. As you can imagine, both of these statements don't end up in unicorns and rainbows. If you've ever seen a man do what was right in his own eyes, it it's, usually turns out horribly. So the Israelites did not drive out fully and conquer the peoples that they were there. And as they were instructed, and these people hang around and corrupt the Israelites with the way they worship and their basic way of life. The bad apple spoils the bunch. It never ends the other way around. The corruption of the leadership from the judges goes from sort of good to okay, to pretty terrible, and ends up in the grease fire that is Samson. So before the concluding chapters of Judges, which are some of the toughest chapters of Scripture you can imagine, I won't be covering those in this podcast. I don't think I will. But if you're curious, give it a whirl and then reach out to me on social media. It's really rough. All right, so here's the cycle of God's people during this time. Let me know if this sounds familiar to you to a certain degree. God's people commit terrible sins. Namely, at this time, it was falling into the worship of these other gods and their practices, sexual rituals, passing the children through the fire, a.k.a. burning kids. There would be an oppression of some kind from the current residents of the area. God's people would call out to God, beg him for help. God would hear their cries and send a deliverer, a.k.a. a judge. This judge would wreck ship Rambo style, crush the bad guys, and there would be peace. But the peace would become complacent. (laughs) as it always does, and leads to what? That's right, terrible sin against God, round and round we go, rinse and repeat. So Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, those are the first three judges. Awesome stories, go read them. Then comes Gideon, a a coward who turns freaking bad boy and does amazing things, but he's got a bit of a temper on this kid, and he makes an idol. Cycle continues. Jephthah is next. He's a street thug of sorts. He won tons of battles. It reminds me of... uh, like a poor town hiring a gunslinger to save their town, like quick in the dead. Jephthah is very effective, but he has no relationship with Yahweh, and he treats him just like the other gods. And he makes a horrible, horrible mistake. And he makes a vow that might be one of, again, another tough portion of Scripture for me. I've had to put the Bible down sometimes after reading that story. But let's skip on to our boy now, the worst of the worst, Samson are somehow still famous mass murder of the Hebrew scriptures. By this point of their history, as a people, you can't tell the Canaanites from the Israelites, and that's a problem. Bringing me to my first tough question in this series for the listeners. If you say you are a Jesus follower today, you are flying the flag of being a quote-unquote Christian, do you look any different from your neighbors who aren't? 
Do you handle bumps from life differently? Do you handle conflict differently? Do you love at a different level? Forgive when it isn't deserved. Encourage people. Lift up. Pray for. We will come back to that. It's a little early for the kick in the teeth there. Let's get back to Samson. Rewind to the start of this judge and his story and how it begins. Chapter 13 of this book. Samson's mother, whose name we are not given, is barren. Common theme in some portions of scripture. Most famously, I would say... Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, maybe Hannah or Elizabeth, if you want to get to the linchpin of connecting the Hebrew Scriptures to the New Testament, and that would be my boy John the Baptist. But I'm not getting into that right now. Remember, this is a honor and shame society. Shame. If your bride is barren, that is tough news, as it is today. Shame. Most in the town are judging you shame. on this, no pun intended. You might have done something for God to be punished for this terrible burden, and even today... You know what this news can do to a relationship. Not being able to have a child is an insane stress in a marriage, and I know many that have crumbled from this. It is a sad, sad state. So back to the book. Manoah, Samson's soon-to-be father, and his wife are barren. And then in verse 3, the angel of the Lord appears to a woman and says, quote, Behold, you are infertile and have no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Therefore, Be careful not to drink wine or any other intoxicating drink. Do not eat anything ceremonially unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the boy is a Nazarite, a.k.a. dedicated to God from birth. And he shall begin to rescue Israel from the hands of the Philistines. End quote. All right, nice start for Samson. A lot to unpack there, as it is most times when an angel of the Lord comes down with a message. It usually carries some weight and some time to sit and think. Am I right, Mary? Shout out to Mary for all my Catholic followers. Man, they love them some Virgin Mary. All right, first off, you might be familiar with the role of a Nazarite. You need to jump back a few chapters. Number six, you can see the valve there. It was like a a dedication. Most of the time it was voluntary, and this is where I give Samson some grace. You could enter into this valve for a set period of time. And you're almost performing as you are the the high priest and let people know how dedicated you are to Yahweh. Women could do this as well. However, Samson's vow was involuntary and, and seemed to have no end. It was a lifelong vow. Nazarite for life. This is the first time this has happened in biblical history. So it's kind of a big deal. It happens only two other times, I believe, and that is Samuel and John the Baptist. And theirs aren't even that strict, I don't I don't think. Samson's terms are the only one where the term Nazarite is clearly defined and used. God is making this one crystal clear. And here are the parameters of this agreement, and they must be maintained. Pay attention to these because they're going to come back in the story. First, no stiff drinks. Should be a callback to Noah, if you're thinking. Uh, No wine. Nothing from the vineyard or grape vine. Secondly, you can't cut your hair. Could be a callback to maybe what Adam looked like in Eden. This is the most visible of the commands, obviously, pretty straightforward. Lastly, you can't come in the vicinity of a corpse. No dead bodies, no burying your parents. You can't come near them. So, superhuman strength coming up, but no killing, big dog. Sorry. God, can I kill my worst enemies? Nope, no killing. It's almost like, have you ever heard the Ron White stand-up routine? when he was talking about Tiger Woods. This isn't really appropriate for a Bible podcast, but that's kind of what I'm going for, if you can't tell. Churched up people, churching up some unchurched people. He's referring to a cheating husband on a crazy scale. 
it's hard to get a cheater not to cheat, hard to get a drinker not to drink. That's their tendency. That's their battle for their life, their cross to bear, so to speak. Gamblers want to gamble. And Ron White says, it's like telling a dog, you can't kill chickens. And he loves to kill chickens. They don't even know what you're talking about. They're saying, hey, dog, you can't kill chickens. All right, so you're saying, I can kill chickens? Nope, you cannot kill chickens. Okay, but what if they're in the same yard as me? Can I kill that chicken? No. So again, you get the point. Samson's going to be armed with this most amazing strength, more than you even realize how strong this guy is. I'll get into it. You might have read he is strong, but wait until I get into the details of this. It is fascinating. Absolutely not of this world, literally strong. And then he is going to be asked to control it. Hmm. Maybe a classical biblical theme there. Use it for good, just like Jonah's temper in the last podcast series, or my boy Cain, who failed the first test. Okay, before I get too far into this story, I just I want to give a shout out to the source material I used to get here. I listened to an episode of the Bay Ma podcast on Judges. I've spoken to this podcast in the past, and I would highly recommend it again. It has really shaped my mind over the past few years. And he referenced a book on Samson that I bought and read and I will lean heavily on in this series. It is called Make Your Mark, subtitle Getting Right What Samson Got Wrong by Brad Gray. What a fantastic book. Get on Amazon and buy this book. I don't know this guy, but I just want to support him. Amazing. So well put together, so thought out. I listened to a podcast by uh, someone on the revenge theme of this book as well, which was huge. Um, But I wanted to give the credit. So great one-hour podcast. Back to our guy. Let's start with the name. Names in the ancient world are very thought out. It's not like today. They didn't just think of the cutest, trendiest name they could have and go with that. Or pick an old family name and regurgitate that either. No. They sat and really thought it out. Or as you've seen in the Bible many times, it would be in reference to how this baby was delivered or the circumstances and setting of the baby or many other factors. Sidebar. This is amazingly accurate for those of us who have kids. Have you ever noticed the way your child was born, like the delivery, is sometimes exactly how their personality turns out to be? I find that fascinating. Okay, so after many thoughts and meditations, prayer, Manawa and his bride come to the name of Shimshon. And Shimshon means little sun, little light, or of the sun or of the light. I will use the name Samson. It is is rendered in English, just not to annoy everyone and distract you help. Poorly, my Hebrew pronunciation is over and over again. So think of where you have seen little lights before or the great light. Just like everything else, everything's connected, Genesis 1, right? So potentially the parents landed on this name in the hopes that Samson would be a great reflection of Yahweh. He would shine his light, similar to our calling as Jesus followers today, right? This is happening in Sorek Valley, where part of the tribe of Dan has settled. Sorek means vine in Hebrew. Get it? Stay away from the vine. A Nazarite who must stay away from the fruit of the vine is born into Vine Valley. How's that for a test from God, huh? All right. Moving the story along, we have our star of the show. We got the backstory and how we get into the weeds, quoting scripture now, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Manoa. Dan, between Zora and Eshtal, end quote. That was Judges 13, 25. This word stir is important. In Hebrew, it's payam. It is a very rare word. It's only used five times in the whole Hebrew scriptures. What it means is to disturb or thrust or push, a.k.a. get your butt up and get moving. 
which could potentially mean that Samson was kind of in no man's land at this point in his life. But Yahweh shook him up like a Mentos in a Coke bottle, and here the story gets going. And guess what his first move is? He's cruising over to a city called Timnah. Timnah's in the Sorek Valley. So it's not a big trek, only about six-mile walks. By the way, if you want, a map of this area would be really helpful, or at least it was for me. Maybe I'm a visual learner, but don't get sideways if you don't have it. But most of the travels are east and west, and just pay attention to the distances and the cities that are passed by. That's the point of it most of the time. And to all my hippy-dippy trail runners listening with whom I love, wait until you hear the elevation gains by our, our boy Samson here in a couple of these. All right, Timnah's a big city, stomping ground the Philistines. Israelites hate the Philistines. And the Philistines would say, right back at you. Samson really doesn't care, and he strolls right in, which he seems to do a lot in this story. Um, have you ever seen the movie Blow, where Johnny Depp walks into the airport in that all-white suit, hair bouncing, supreme confidence? That's how I see Samson in his settings. I don't know why, but it just works. When in town, he sees a beautiful lady. He heads back home, and he lets his parents know, hey, uh, I saw this gorgeous Philistine lady, and I want her as a bride, so uh, set that up. Thanks. His parents are like, uh, what? They are none too pleased, as you can imagine. Bring this story to today's world in any cultural, racial, economic status, bias that you think of in any movie from the 80s and 90s. They're begging him to change his mind. Spoiler alert, he doesn't and never does. He pretty much bullies his parents into compliance and drags them back to Timnah with him to get this wedding. Let's get it going. Now, on the way there, something happens. Quote, as they approach the vineyards, your antenna should go up there, of Timnah, suddenly a young lion, pay attention to that word, came roaring toward him. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done, end quote. That's Judges 14.5 there. So, okay, Samson, super normal turn of events there, nothing. It's like a normal Sunday school tale, right, kids? Why is the class crying? There's a lot going on here. A lion jumps out on the walk. I don't know why his parents aren't around. It doesn't say. Maybe they're hanging back on the walk. He rips a lion to shreds. He doesn't shoot it. He doesn't stab it. He doesn't hit it with a rock. He rips it. Strike one in the Nazarite vow, right? Remember, no dead bodies. Here's another thing that should bother you. The spirit of the Lord came upon him right before he did this. Why would Yahweh want any part of this act? Isn't that weird to you? It is to me. I, I don't like it. Lions are gorgeous creatures. Why give Samson super God strength to kill this beautiful animal? We'll come back to that. And lastly... Why does the scripture let us know that he keeps this from his parents? Well, the last one is the only easy one for me up to this point. The process of what needs to happen to atone for the sin of touching a dead body is kind of a lot. If you go back to Numbers and read, you're not going to. Who am I kidding? All right, fine, I'll tell you. This is a huge topic. I could spend hours on this, but I can't. Let me sum it up. Okay, you know how on this side of the cross that Jesus was the lion and the lamb at the same time? How when he died, he gave up his spirit, and the veil covering the Holy of Holies of Temple was split in two. That was kind of a huge deal. We on this side of the cross take for granted our access to creator of the world. That is one of the greatest gifts that Jesus gave us. 
I can be sitting in my car and want to ask forgiveness for something beyond stupid and ridiculous that I have done to another human being, I am able to do that before the light turns green. Do you see that? That is a gift. You know why? Because before Jesus took all of our sins as we were still sinning upon himself and took the hit for every dumpster fire of a decision I will ever make, before he did that, we had animal sacrifices and atonement. You had to go to the temple, which was probably a pretty far trek from your house. You gave money. You bought an animal. You spoke to a man, a priest, and told him your sin. He would convey that message to God. You would put your hands on this innocent animal that did nothing wrong, just like Jesus, and that animal was slaughtered for your poor decisions. Then you would carry on back to your poor little village and keep on living. So let's close in prayer, shall we? That's as concise as I can be on this enormous topic, but I have to move on. In short, to Samson, and let's be honest, to most of us, this is an incredibly annoying thing to do when you're in the middle of doing something. Now he has to slaughter this lion deliberately, so there's that. But let's say it was just a mistake. He was walking on the road, tripped and fell, touched a dead lion or a deer or a bird. Pause. Now you have to get up, head to the temple, or at this time the tabernacle or the tent in the desert. By the way, this tent was in Shiloh, so that's 70 miles round trip. Did you hear that? So, again, I give Samson some grace here. You touch a dead body, you drink some wine, you cut your hair, stop and head out for a week to make sure you get squared away with Yahweh. That's brutal, man. So hopefully we're on the same page here. Moving on. All right, after a period of time, Scripture doesn't say how long, he heads back to Timnah for the wedding with his new Philistine bride, which no one is happy about. Along the way, he, quote, turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey, which is sometimes seen as angel food. That's another podcast. He scooped out the honey with his hand, and he ate it as he went along. Alarm bells should be going off in your head right now. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some too, and they ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. End quote. That's Judges 14.8. All right, so touches the dead body again, breaks the vow. His parents have now touched it too. He doesn't tell them. So they are now ceremonially unclean as well, and it's not their fault. So next, Samson has a huge feast for the wedding. Traditional, fine. However, the word for feast here in Hebrew is mesheth, which sometimes can be seen as a drinking battle. Maybe. I'm a little torn on this one, as I've seen a few variations on that word. I don't know about that. But one could gather that maybe he was, uh, you know, overserved at a wedding. Shocker. So this could be another spot where he broke the Nazarene vow. Maybe. But one thing that makes me think he did is this is a seven-day wedding event. That's a, that's a lot of partying. I think uh, he might have taken a little party favor along the way. Scripture leaves that to the reader, as it usually does. Remember, this is Jewish meditation literature, so meditate on it. Take it or leave it. All right, next up for Samson, he's at the party. He's talking to his new uh, quote-unquote quote unquote, friends that uh, just seem to be assigned to him, basically. And at this fun dinner table, his next idea is, how about I just embarrass all my friends in front of everyone? Brilliant move. He tosses out a ridiculous riddle that is impossible to solve because it has no frame of reference, and he lays this out to his 40 groomsmen for no reason. Great host. So this is Judges 14, 12, quote, Let me uh, now ask you a riddle. 
If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and solve it, then I will give you 30 linen tunics. It's like undergarments. And 30 changes of outer clothes. But if you are unable to tell me the answer, then you shall give me 30 of each. And then the riddle goes on like this. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. End quote. Okay, I have to keep moving on this podcast, but spoiler alert. After he's talking about the honey in the dead lion carcass, sweet riddle, Samson. How are they supposed to have any clue that he broke his Nazarite vow and now wants to talk about it? This isn't a brain teaser. This is stupid. What if you went to work and, you know, said, guess what I did over the weekend? And your coworkers asked normal questions. Did you take a trip? Did you have a nice dinner? Oh, no, I went spelunking in a gorge, of course. Ha, idiot. Now you owe me 30 Nike dry fits and shorts. That's dumb. Pay up. Come on. That's, that's basically what he did here. So the friends can't solve this, obviously. So they go to his new fiance, his new bride. Remember, she's one of them. And they say to her, quote, coax your husband into explaining this riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here just to steal our property? End quote. So they are so embarrassed. This is, remember, this is an honor-shame culture. This might seem silly to us here now, but in this setting, Samson has royally tried to do nothing but ruin this party. So she begs, complains, cries, and cries for seven days until Samson finally lets them in on the joke. But first, he throws his new wife a lovely comment in front of everyone for good measure. He says, quote, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. End quote. That's lovely, Samson. Just call your new bride a heifer to everyone for ruining your Andy Kaufman-style inside joke. FYI, if you're wondering if calling your wife a cow carries the same weight then as it does now, you're right. It's rude. All right, what, what happens next really bothers me, and this is where we see the theme of how Samson handles life bumps. He is really good at taking his ball and going home. Hell, I wish that was what he did, but he takes it up a notch. I mean... We're told, quote, Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. End quote. All right, for those keeping score, that's another notch in the old belt of breaking vows for Samson. He just killed again 30 innocent people, and then he steals their clothes to pay off a self-inflicted, ridiculous bet. And what is the spirit of the Lord doing there right before he does this? What is that? Here's another baffling stat and where a map might help. The wedding was in Timnah. So, so Ashkelon is where? It's 25 miles due west. He passed all the major cities and he goes to a port city. So as the author Gray of the book puts it, he just made the hornet's nest 10 times larger. What in the world do you think those men were thinking when this monster rolls into town? They're just 30 regular dudes, man. He takes their clothes and he dips. Then he runs to his daddy's house. What a terrible story. Why is this in the Bible? Oh, and he passed right by Timnah and his bride to go home. So are all the guests and his wife and new in-laws, what are they thinking? This is like watching a terrible episode of Cops or something. I will tell you what the bridal party and the family were thinking, because if you read the next line, you'll see, quote, Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended the wedding, end quote. This is the part of reading the Bible that 
you kind of take your glasses off and rub your temple from time to time. How do you think this one's going to end up? If you've learned a little bit of Samson's temperament thus far, they assume Samson was gone for good because he acted like a maniac. So they make a group decision and they give his bride to the best man of this wedding, who supposedly, I don't even see that Samson knew this guy. And then after Samson calms down and decides to mosey on back to Timnah, he's like, uh, where's my wife? Why is everyone being so weird? I just ran away mad, uh, but I'm ready to be a person again. Why aren't you all on the same wavelength with me? Where's my wife? I brought a goat. Say, I'm sorry. Let's all move on. Have you ever met someone like this? You ever been related to someone like this? They fly off the handle, then they come back with a teddy bear or a TV or a diamond necklace. We good now? I don't want to talk about what happened or grow together, but uh, just just take this trinket. So his father-in-law tries to talk to him and makes an ancient world offering. Hey, uh, hey, Samson, can I talk to you over here for a little bit, man? We, uh, we thought you were good, gone for good. So I made the decision to give my daughter to a suitable man. We didn't know what to do, but you know, no hard feelings. These things happen. I have something for you. I have another daughter. She's a little younger, but she's great. Okay. Sound fair? You can take a wild guess how Samson feels about this one. Shot in the dark, throw a dart. How do you think this went? I, I bet you can see where this is going, but you can't imagine the evil genius of revenge that this guy is. It's like, it's like looking at torture devices of the Inquisition or weapons or bombs thought of in the World Wars. Who could come up with this? So the best part is just how justified he feels before doing this, because in his eyes, they had just wronged him. He's getting even. He takes no ownership of his actions, but he's ready to react to their reaction. He even says, quote, This time I shall be blameless in regards to the Philistines when I do them harm, end quote, a.k.a. since someone has hurt me, it is within my rights to react and get even with them. Whatever I decide will be worth it because someone's got to pay for this. So Samson quietly goes out and rounds up 300 jackals. Some translations say foxes, but foxes are pretty isolated, so jackals makes more sense to me. Not that it matters, but he ties their tails in pairs. Stay with me here. He lights a torch. He puts it in a knotted intersection of their tails and then turns them loose on the crops of Timnah. He burned the standing grain and he burned the heaps of sheaves and the stored grain. That means all the grain in the field and all the hay in the barn, a.k.a. everything. And, and the vineyards for the wine and the olive groves. Folks, this means that he literally took down the entire economy of the area, and that is not an overstatement. He killed all crops of all seasons. Do you see that? Not just the grain. He went spring, summer, fall, winter on these guys. Everything is gone. And for what? For what? Let's say you're the mayor of a small town in Georgia. I'll use it because it makes sense to me. You use your own crops. You, you hand your daughter in marriage to a boy from out of town against your best interest, no doubt. At the wedding party that you paid for, he shows his backside, acts ridiculous, and then leaves. He comes back to find that you gave his fiance to someone else, and his reaction to that is burn every crop in the region. What do we have in Georgia? Peanuts, corn, watermelons, pecans, soy, whatever. The lives of thousands of people are now ruined. For what? For hurt feelings? Do you know how long a vineyard takes to come back and start producing? Do you know how an olive grove takes to set in? 
Do you know how much grain can be stored and put away? This is a man-made disaster on the level of a hurricane in New Orleans. It's over. And the Philistines react in kind. Once they find out who did this and the reason why, they seek to get rid of the source of their problem that Samson has with them. And that being the new wife and her family who let this snake into the cane fields. This is in the Bible, okay? They burn the girl and her entire family alive. Still like the Sunday school story? Let me tell you, if there aren't times when you have to set the Bible down and take a minute and collect yourself, then you are not reading it. I have known people who fell away from the faith because they heard a Sam Harris podcast on maybe a tough subject like slavery in the Bible. And with that being a brutal topic in this country for 150 years, I almost want to say, keep reading. It gets worse. These stories are brutal in here. And Samson said to them, quote, If this is the way you act, be certain that I will take revenge on you. And only after that will I stop, end quote. And it says that he killed an unknown amount of people in this great slaughter. And then he took off for Etom and lived in a cleft of a rock. So for the map viewers of this podcast, that's 18 miles east. He goes and sits, arm crossed, after going on a berserker killing spree again. And yes, breaking the vow again. And I haven't even gotten to the famous jawbone scene of this guy. Or heck, I haven't even mentioned Delilah. But I don't think I can take any more of this guy for one day. You might be feeling the same. So let's wrap up here. Try to get something out of this. If I am God right here, which I am not, I would think of calling a 30-second timeout, pull Samson aside and say, hey, son, what are you doing? What is all this? You weren't called for this. And maybe Samson would say back, you made me the strongest human that ever lived and then put me into this chaos. What am I supposed to do? I think he might say, how about you stop wasting your talent, Samson? If you think God put you on this earth to kill everyone that hurts your feelings, then you don't know the God of this universe. You're better than that. So why would God give Samson superhuman strength and then tell him to not harm anyone from birth? You ever seen a Great Dane or a, or a bull mastiff at a dog park and there's this little yippy dog barking and carrying on? The strong giant dog barely pays attention to them because what's the point? They could kill this thing with one bite, but... Even the dog knows that's stupid. Samson doesn't. How about this? What if he just didn't react one time in all these scenarios? And more to come on that, by the way. But what if he just paused and thought long-term for a minute instead of creating more death and dismay for everyone in his life? As Ed Dodson out of Grand Rapids, Michigan says in his short film, he says, quote, forgiveness is a great idea until you have to forgive. And then it becomes difficult. <laughs> I would say amen to that. The story of Samson is how to get everything wrong when the world is at your feet. Revenge never works. You know why? Because why would you ever want to get even with someone that you don't even like? Rather, wouldn't you want to get ahead of that person? What would it look like to return good for their evil? Who had more power on their time on this earthly setting, Samson or Jesus? And how did they respond when pressed? I have a pastor friend that always gets mad at the part where Jesus is on the cross and they're spitting at him and mocking him, telling him to come down off of there if he's so powerful. Save yourself, Messiah, if you are one. He really wanted him to come down and wreck ship and, and, and make that the story. You know, good and well Samson would have. 
And what does Jesus say? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's the point, I think, of this story. Jesus making everyone uncomfortable washing their feet, the lowest of low tasks, teaching humility, servant leadership. As the author Brad Gray of this book on Samson puts it, Jesus was a professional knee bender. He's the opposite of Samson. Bending the knee and submitting goes against every fiber of humanity in our flawed flesh body. It takes effort and energy and mental toughness, but it is always the better choice. Samson submitted to no one, ever. Not his parents, his wife, his friends, his countrymen. He was all about might makes right. And you will see where that lands him in the next episode. Similar to today, in ancient times, you would show your authority by power and others serving you. Jesus flipped this for us like he does everything out. And now what? Jesus says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am Lord. And this is because those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's Matthew 23. If you want to get high, then make yourself lower than others. If you want yourself to be the center of your life, you will fail just like Samson. Even if you were born with all the tools for success, that's not enough. Close the gap, bend the knee. What Samson shows in his reactions is weakness. Jesus shows us what real strength looks like and gets it right and asks us to follow him. What Samson gets wrong, Jesus makes perfect. Now, do you want to follow Samson or do you want to follow Christ? I am Tyler Parker and Sunday School is out. (laughs) 